Amen. Absolutely. He is faithful. Amen. And praise God for his faithfulness. Good morning. God bless you for being here. Uh, I apologize for the parking lot as you pulled in. Uh, one of our pastors went over this morning, and I will talk to him about it. That was me, by the way. It was me. And I know, so, you know it's crazy. You know, it can lock up the parking lot uh, even more so than usual. But we're noticing more and more people are parking at the two properties. And so just so you know, we do have permission. Some of you have done that without knowing that we have permission. But just to let you know, don't be convicted by it. We have permission, and we encourage it. And so parking across at the community center or over here at Ashton um, is a great way to, to get out a little bit quicker. You got a little bit of a walk there, but uh, we have permission to park in those parking lots. And so thank you for your patience, and thank you for uh, your flexibility. Uh, God's doing great things, and we want to celebrate the work that he's doing in the life of our church. Two weeks from today, we'll celebrate our 20th anniversary. This church was planted in February of 1999, and so two weeks from today, we're going to have a normal service, but a service that we're going to also highlight and celebrate, not what we've done, but what the Lord has done in spite of us. We want to celebrate the Lord's faithfulness in the life of this church. I'm very thankful for Dr. Dennis Colbert, the original pastor, the founding pastor of this church. I'm very thankful for uh, the original 70 people uh, that planted River Oak out of South Norfolk uh, Baptist Church, and, and God has truly blessed this place. And I believe uh, it's a direct result from the early days of, of a commitment to God's Word, uh, a commitment to glorifying Christ, not themselves. And I believe God has honored and blessed that. And so we want to celebrate that. And so two weeks from today, uh, kind of cool, uh, Pastor Kyle Toddy, who is the Director of Missions and Outreach here, will be preaching that morning. His name is on the original uh, membership as a seven-year-old boy. And so now he serves on staff here as our pastor of missions and outreach. And so we want to celebrate again. He's a great testimony of what God's done in using this church in the life of a, of a young man. And now a calling into ministry and now serving uh, here on staff at, at River Oak. We have a new members class this Saturday. We're finishing up our new members this Wednesday. But we have a full session this Saturday. And so I always encourage, even if you just need more information about the church, it's a great opportunity to come and be a part. We'll meet from 12 to 3 uh, this Saturday in room 108 which is the back uh, room there. And then about a month from today, March 3rd, is Baptism Sunday. I mentioned that because today we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus. And so I welcome an opportunity. I know I speak for our pastors as well. If the Lord is stirring you, maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized on this side of your profession of faith. If the Lord is stirring in your heart, we would welcome an opportunity to sit down with you and just to walk uh, that journey with you. But March 3rd will be our next baptism service. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. We're continuing in our study, our series, Jesus a journey through Luke, which really goes back to Christmas. If you were with us back at the beginning of December, we just really uh, opened up the Gospel of Luke and walked through chapter 1, chapter 2, and now we're just making our way uh, through the Gospel of Luke. And we come now to Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, which is a very pivotal passage in the Gospels. We know that this is the launch of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, we've looked at John the Baptist. We've looked at the message of John the Baptist, that here was this man spoke about 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, by Malachi, 400 years earlier, as the one who would be the forerunner. The one who would go before the Messiah. And so we've looked at the message that he's been preaching. As you go to Luke 3, we see that he comes from the wilderness, jacked up on honey and locusts, preaching a message of repentance, wearing camel hairs and a leather belt. This dude came out preaching repentance. 
And we find here this beautiful passage where Jesus travels. He travels over 70 miles. And if you look at the original text, what you find is it says specifically for the purpose of baptism. He didn't just stumble upon the crowd and there's John baptizing people. It says specifically that Jesus showed up for baptism. It's a powerful passage. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to reading God's Word. Luke chapter 3. But we're also going to mark your spot and go to Matthew. And so we're going to spend uh, really the majority of our time this morning in the gospel of Matthew chapter 3. But let's read these first two verses here in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. The title of the message this morning is Well Pleased, as Luke has been doing as, a, you know, as an investigative reporter, right? Luke the physician, he's writing again to prove this is who Christ said he was. And we find this affirmation all throughout his letter. You find the affirmation from the angels. You find the affirmation of of Mary and Joseph. You find the affirmation of the wise men, uh, the shepherds. You find the affirmation of of Simeon uh, in the temple, of Anna in the temple, of even John the Baptist. What you find in this passage is the greatest of all those affirmations, obviously, which is the affirmation of the Father from heaven. The Bible says this, Luke chapter 3, two verses here in this passage, and then we'll make our way over to Matthew. The Bible says this, beginning in verse 21, when all the people were baptized. It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can gather as a body of believers, to lift our voices high to the one who is worthy of our praise and our glory. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. I thank you, Lord, personally for your mercy. And Lord, the forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life is found in Christ alone. And so, Lord, we lift high the name of Jesus. In our prayers at church, Lord, and I believe this from the time that this place began, that we would always be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would stand upon truth, not compromising truth, lived out in love with grace, but to stand upon the truth of your word. And so, Lord, this morning, as we look at this passage, stir our hearts, Lord, convict our souls, Lord, change us from the inside out. May Christ be glorified in this place and in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I heard there's a football game. Is that true? There's a football game? Uh, Are the Redskins playing? I'm not sure. I don't really follow football. Do they usually? I see we got some Rams fans down front. Just kidding. I see your Patriots. God can forgive all people. So So how many people? How many people pulling for the Patriots? Raise your hand. How many people? How many people Rams? Wow. So that's a anybody but the Patriots crowd is what that is. You know, how many people? I don't care. I'm here for the food. That, okay, that's me. All right, here we go. And so this passage of Scripture, man, I tell you, it's, it's one of those that, you know, again, I've, I've read it. I've, I've, I've studied it before. I've even preached upon it before. But, man, there's so many new things, and I love that. Because God's Word is living, right? God's Word is living. And, and you can find a verse, you can find a story, you can find a passage. But there's just something about how the Holy Spirit can take something out of something you've read maybe a thousand times. Show you new things. And show you new uh, views of what's happening here. And so I love this passage of Scripture. And so always I would encourage you, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are what? Matthew, Mark, 
and Luke. It's where we get our English word synopsis. It basically means to view together. When you go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find there's a lot of similarities between these three Gospels. Again, many believe that Mark was the first. Somewhere in the late 50s, maybe early 60s, many believe that just a couple years after that, Matthew and Luke wrote their gospel with Mark's gospel in hand. Now, because it's interesting, as you go down down and you break down how it all falls, we know that 90% of the gospel of Mark is found in the gospel of Matthew. We know that 50% of the gospel of Mark is found in the gospel of Luke. However, John stands over here on its own. Well, there's a reason for that. You go through and you look again. You look at the time in which it was written. You look at the audience in which it was written to. We know Mark was writing Luke and uh, Matthew, a historical account of Jesus. They wanted to write the story. That's why, where where do they begin? They begin with the birth narratives of Jesus. And so they're writing in many ways in a chronological form. They're writing, okay, here's the story. Here's the story of his birth. Here's the story of that window of his 12 years old in the temple. Here's the story of his baptism. Now, here's his earthly ministry. Here's his death, and here here is his resurrection. We know that Mark is writing to Romans, Jewish Christians in Rome. We know Matthew is writing to a Jewish crowd. That's why when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you find so many Old Testament prophecies. You find Matthew connecting Jesus back to the Old Testament because he's writing to Jewish people. He's saying, hey, this is the Messiah that was spoken of by Isaiah. This is the Messiah that was spoken of by the prophets. We know that Luke is a physician, a Gentile physician. He's not a Jew. And so he's writing his gospel from a Gentile perspective. And so you find this all throughout the gospel of Luke. He's writing that, hey, this Messiah, this Savior has not just come to the Jewish people. He's come for all people. You come to the gospel of John. 90% of the gospel of John is unique to John. Only 10% of John will you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a reason for that. Many believe that John's gospel was the last to be written. Some even say maybe 20, 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as he's writing the gospel of John, the historical account of Jesus has already been written. There's no need to go back and and rewrite a historical account of Jesus. And so John writes from a theological standpoint. Many believe, again, that the enemy, no, he has no original material. He is a perverter of only the things of God. And so many believe that, okay, it's now maybe been 50 years, 60 years since the death of Jesus. By that time, heresy is spreading. The gospel was spreading, but heresy was spreading. And so John writes from a theological standpoint. That's why John begins not with the physical birth of Jesus, but how does John begin? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so here he is writing from an eternal perspective. Theologically, this is who Jesus is. But it's always a great exercise to go back and, okay, if I'm reading a passage in Luke, or if I'm reading a passage in Mark, or I'm reading a passage in Matthew, to go back and kind of see, okay, who adds to the story? Maybe one of the gospel writers gives a little bit more information. And that's what we find here with the baptism of Jesus. So take your Bibles and go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at Matthew's account, and we're going to walk through this passage. We're only given two verses in Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. But let's look at Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. And let me read this passage for you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. That phrase there in the original language simply means for the purpose of baptism. He didn't stumble upon the crowds. He didn't stumble upon, okay, what's happening here at the Jordan? Jesus traveled 70 miles by foot for the purpose of baptism. It says this, 
John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. You are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, look at what he says. Permit it to be so now, don't miss this, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Very important phrase. Then he allowed him, I, I, I chuckle at that right there, like, like John had the ability to either keep him or not. John allowed him. Anyway, let's keep going. My mind just goes all over the place. It says this. Verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, this is what is known as a Trinitarian passage. You find all three persons of the Trinity working, functioning in different ways, but at the same time. Look at this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up, God the Son, immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, so God the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, now God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So let's walk through this passage. Let's go back to verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee, or your translation may say arrived from Galilee for the purpose of to be baptized to John at the Jordan, to be baptized by him. And so again, picture the scene. For 30 years, Jesus in many ways has lived in obscurity. The only window we're given is a 12-year-old boy where he travels with his family to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That's the, only, that's the only window we're given in Scripture of his childhood. And so for 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity. But now comes the launch of his public ministry. He walked 70 miles from Galilee to John at the Jordan. And notice what happens here in Matthew three fourteen. And John tried to what? Prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. A very interesting passage. You can write this down as a cross-reference. John, actually 131, John chapter 1, verse 31, adds a little phrase there that says, initially, John the Baptist did not recognize Jesus. And many theologians said, okay, how can that be? I mean, right, uh, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, and so why wouldn't he recognize someone who is related to him? How many of you have never met a second cousin? Raise your hand. And if you have, you, it'd be easy to deny them if they're real weird, right? Because I don't know that person, right? But they're blood, they're blood. And so we don't know the, the relationship or history with John and Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us. We obviously know that John knew of Jesus, right? We know that, right? When you go back to the prophecy of his father, Zacharias, you go to the temple. Zacharias is holding the baby. He's holding John the Baptist, and he declares, child, this is why you're born. And he declares prophecy. He says, you will be the one that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. You will be the one who will go before the one who is promised in the Old Testament. And so obviously, if Zacharias is given that prophecy there in, in the temple as John is a baby, as John grew up, he's hearing of Jesus. He's being told of Jesus by both Elizabeth and Zacharias. But the Bible doesn't tell us what relationship, or if they lived in the same town, many believe that they didn't even live in the same town. We also don't know how long John had been in the wilderness. Remember, he's jacked up on honey and locusts. He's wearing his camel hairs and his leather belt. The Bible says God called him into the wilderness. We don't know when that was. And so it's an interesting passage, but I don't struggle with it. I think for many of us, we can recognize, okay, if, if a second cousin walked up, maybe we've heard about him. Our parents have told us about him. We know of them. But we may not initially recognize them. Well, John tells us that. But when John realizes the Baptist, who he is, he tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? 
Now, yes, it's humility, right? I mean, here's John saying, I I can't baptize you. I mean, I'm not even worthy to carry your sandal. But it goes a little bit deeper than just John's humility. What is John, what is the baptism that has taken place? It's a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of confession. And so we know that it's not the the resurrected view of baptism. It's not portraying Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus had yet to die. Jesus had yet to come out from the grave. But as John is preaching this, this fruit of repentance, as we've seen over the last two weeks, what is he saying? He is saying, you need to come to be baptized to admit that you are in need of a Savior. So now we understand why John would try to stop Jesus. I mean, you're going to give these people the wrong impression. These people are walking in the waters admitting that they're what? Sinners. It's a baptism of repentance. But what you find in the heart of Christ is what? He is so sold out to the will and the purpose of the Father that what people say is of no matter. John tries to prevent him from being baptized. What will people think? I'm the forerunner. Hey, we're here to convince the world. We're here to convince these people that you're the Messiah, that you truly are the Son of God. And if you come into the waters of baptism like everyone else, they're going to think that you're a sinner just like everyone else. My voice just got real high right there. But it says in verse 13, look at verse 15. Jesus' response. These are the first recorded words of Christ since the Bible gives us that glimpse at 12 years old when he says to his mom, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? This is the first recorded words of Jesus, the launch of his public ministry, Matthew 3, 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, it's interesting, again, you go to the original language. I had to go back and look at some stuff. Uh, when, When it talks about that conversation between John and Jesus, this wasn't just one statement. It's in the imperfect tense, and so it indicates that there was a struggle here. That John is basically pleading with Jesus. Hey, don't be baptized. I don't need to baptize you. If there's anyone who needs to be baptized, it's me. And I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus has permitted to be so. Why? So that all righteousness may be fulfilled. That's important. You think about it. What does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that Jesus came into the world to do what? To fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. All of the requirements that you and I fall way short of. And so the Bible says what? That Jesus stands in our place not just as our sin bearer. He also stands in our place as our righteousness. That's the beautiful exchange when the greatest miracle that can happen in someone's life, the the miracle of salvation takes place. There's an exchange. Not only are our sins placed upon the shoulders of Jesus, but don't miss the exchange. The exchange is what? That the righteousness of Christ is laid upon us. That's why what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. Sometimes we miss the second part of that exchange. Right? We hear the gospel. Man, I'm a sinner. And that's not hard for us to come to grips with, right? I'm a sinner for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. If you believe that, say amen. Amen? If you didn't just say amen, you just sinned, so now you're in our category. We're all sinners because you just lied. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And so we know that, okay, if God is holy, if God is righteous, if our creator is perfect, I don't meet those standards. And so what do we read in God's word? That there was one who met his holy standards. There was one who satisfied every requirement of the law to the detail. And so we know that, okay, our sins have been laid upon the shoulders of Christ, but don't miss this. His righteousness 
is laid upon us. That's why when we stand before our Creator, if you are in Christ, if you have truly repented of your sins and by faith professed Christ as your Savior, we'll all have a day that we stand before our Creator. If you are in Christ, you will stand before your Creator, not exposed in your sins and your mistakes and your faults, but covered by the righteousness and the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. We ain't the frozen chosen in here. Let's get lively. Come on now. Can I get an amen? There's hope in that. Listen, that means what? That my day may change. That storm may enter into my life. Hey, a tragedy may enter into my life. But if I am in Christ, that is fixed. That is secured. You want to talk about hope. You want to talk about joy. You want to talk about peace. There's nothing this world can do. There's nothing my mistakes can do. There's nothing the enemy can do to snatch me from the hand of God. I'll stand before him covered. By the righteousness of Jesus. Sometimes we miss that, not from an eternal perspective, but also just from the grind of the Christian life. You know, sometimes, and I was raised in the church, you can fall into this trap of, hey, I know I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. But then we think, okay, now I got to live my best for Jesus. That means I got to try harder for Jesus. I got to let go of these struggles and these addictions, and I just got to persevere and just live for Jesus. That's not what you find in Scripture. What does Jesus say? He says, die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then what? Follow me. And so what do we find? We find that when the life that we've been called to live, that there ain't none of us in this place that can live that life. So what does it require? It requires surrender. It requires submission. It requires us on our face to say, Lord, I cannot fulfill the will of your calling upon my life. And so I die to me. I deny myself. I take up my cross, which is what? A death instrument. Every single day, I'm going to put my flesh. I'm going to put my desires. I'm going to put my agenda. I'm going to put my pride. I'm going to put this, the, my ideas of what this life should be. And I'm going to nail it to the cross so that I can die so that you may live. It's the exchange. That's why Jesus says what in John 15, abide in me and I in you, because without me you can do, say it with me. But yet we try every day, don't we, to do it in our own efforts. I know I do. We get frustrated. We get discouraged. And the enemy is quick to remind us of our shortcomings. The enemy is quick to remind us of our mistakes. The enemy is quick to wave in front of us our inability to live the life that God has called us to live. But listen, there's freedom when you come to the place and you say, dear God, I can't live that life. And so I give up the rights to me so that you can live it through me. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now follow this with me. Think about this. All of the obedience and faithfulness that we owe to our creator, our heavenly father. What do you find in scripture? That the Lord Jesus Christ provided with absolute perfection, even down to the command of baptism. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements for you and I. So what does the Bible promise? That for those who are in Christ, think about this. Our Heavenly Father looks upon us as if we lived the life that He lived. This voice from God, from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, if you're in Christ, then you stand pleased before the Father. Not because of what you've done, but because of what the Son has done. In Christ, God looks upon us as if we lived His life. As if we fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law that none of us can fulfill. What did Jesus do? He went to the cross and died a death as if he lived the life that we live. He didn't have to die. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible says what in Romans 6, 23? For the wages of sin is... He didn't have sin. There was no penalty. He was perfect. 
He was holy. He's the only person who's ever lived who did not have to die. And yet upon the cross, he took our shame and our sins, and he took it before the Father as if he lived the life of us. And now in Christ, the Father looks upon us as if we lived the life of Jesus. Look at what happens here in verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, it's interesting here. Again, I mentioned earlier, this verse, or these couple of verses, is known as a Trinitarian passage. What does it mean? You find all the works of the Trinity. Now, do I stand before you and tell you I understand the Trinity? Absolutely not. I also don't understand electricity, but I trust when I turn the switch on, it's going to cut on. And so I don't understand the Trinity. I believe in it. I trust in it. And there will come a day when our fallen minds are done away with, that we'll have a renewed mind, a renewed body, and I believe there we'll have a better understanding of the Trinity. But this is a Trinitarian passage. What does that mean? All the works of the Trinity are taking place in this one moment. Let's look at this. Verse 16. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And so what do you find here? All three persons of the Godhead is present. God the Son is what? Baptized. God the Father affirms the Son from heaven. God the Holy Spirit, what? Descends upon the Son as a dove from heaven. All the works of God, but in three different ways. This is, again, hard for us to wrap our minds around. I recognize that. But what you find here is that all three persons, present, active, fulfilling different roles, fully and eternally God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you another Trinitarian passage. You ready? Go to Ephesians. Mark your spot here. You can write this down. Ephesians 1. Paul speaks into the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the greatest miracle of salvation. Let me just give you a couple of verses here. All three persons of the Trinity in the work of salvation of the soul. It says this in Ephesians 1 verse 3. I'd encourage you to go back and read this whole passage all the way down to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the Father. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons. And so here he is. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about salvation. So salvation appointed by God the Father, but accomplished by God the Son. Look at verse 5. How is it accomplished? By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Let's jump down now to verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted Jesus. So again, salvation appointed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, but now applied by the Spirit. Look at this next part. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You can go back to Genesis and in a different language, in the Hebrew language, actually see another Trinitarian passage. Let me give you this verse. Genesis 1 26. Many of you will recognize this passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So we know that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, again, do we fully understand it? Of course not. But we see it active and fully fulfilling different roles. Go back now to the Matthew passage and look at verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever struggled with your identity? Have you ever struggled with your value? Have you ever struggled with your worth? Have you ever struggled with, man, am I really living up to the standards of God? Well, let me answer that question for you. No, you're not. Because there only was one who did, and who was that? Jesus. So let me show this to you right You want to talk about joy, hope. You want to talk about identity. You want to talk about value and worth. To know that I stand before God the Father, not because I lived a pretty good life, not because I came to church, not because I tried to preach a couple of good messes, not because I didn't cuss the guy out in the parking lot. That's not why. I stand before God whole. I stand before God righteous. I stand before God pleasing the Father, not because of what I have done, but because I am no longer now in my sins. I am now in Christ. And now in Christ, the Father sees me in Jesus, and he sees me in the one that we read about who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so that when I stand before my Creator, he's not going to see all the mistakes that I've made, and I've made plenty of them. He's going to see Jesus, and he's going to see the covering of his righteousness. Listen, you want to talk about hope today? I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what tragedy, I don't know what storm you're in. But listen, if you know Christ, you want to talk about joy, you want to talk about peace. Here's the bad news. The Bible says we are born into our sins. Sons of Adam, we are born into our flesh. The bad news is what? We stand opposed, an enemy of the throne of God, guilty of our transgressions. But here's the good news. The bad news sets you up for the good news. Here's the good news. You ready for the good news? It's common in Christ. We stand not as a slave guilty in debt to God. We stand as sons and daughters now adopted into the family of God. Not opposed to the throne of God, but now joint heirs with Jesus, purchased by the blood of Christ, sealed by his Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.26, for you are sons of God. How? Through your faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here it is. To redeem those who were under the law. What does that mean? To redeem those who are guilty of the law. And that's all of us. That we might receive, don't miss this, adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of the son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, crying out, Daddy, Father. Therefore, here it is, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God, how? Through Christ. I'm going to give you a no. I'm about to have a fit up here. Ephesians 2, 4. I don't even know what that means. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen? I will pass out Red Bull if we need to do that. Can I get an amen? We got to get excited about this, man. Listen, this is what empowers us as we walk out of this door to say, Lord, you have saved me. You have sealed me. There is nothing I can do today to make you love me more. There's nothing I can do today to make you love me less. I rest in the finished work of Jesus. And because I'm in Christ, I don't stand opposed to the throne. I don't stand guilty of my transgressions. I should, but because I'm in Christ, I am seen by the Father with the righteousness of the Son who fulfilled every requirement of the law, who fulfilled all the standards of your holiness. So I stand before you free. I stand before you innocent. I stand before you holy, not because I'm a good person, but because I've called upon Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3. Love this passage. I preached like three months on it. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who according to his abundant mercy 
has borne us again a second birth to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Unless that changes, my standing before God doesn't change. Unless changes, unless something changes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, my salvation is secure. You know why? I didn't do nothing to earn my salvation. Doesn't the Bible say it's not a work for any man to boast? I didn't do nothing to earn my salvation. I've responded to what Christ has done for my salvation. And so for my standing to change before a holy God, Christ has to change. And the Bible says he is the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be tomorrow. I rest in the finished work of Jesus. Well pleased before the Father. Let that sink in. That if you're in Christ, the words of the Father to Jesus are the words to you and I. Think about that. You ever feel like, man, my life, take one step forward, I get knocked back to. Listen, in Christ, the work of salvation is finished. And so when the Father looked from heaven to the Son, It says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For all those who call upon the name of Jesus, we stand before the Father with those same words. This is not an enemy. This is a son. This is a daughter. Joint heirs with Christ. So rather than giving you what you deserve, and all of us fall into this category, an eternal hell because of the mistakes and the sins that you've committed before my throne, rather than giving you what you deserve, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. It's grace, right? My son, who came and lived a life that you can't live, who died a death that you can't die, that satisfied the wrath and judgment of a holy God, and who finished the work of salvation, through his resurrection, well pleased before the Father. I wrote this phrase down in my initial study on Thursday. I came back to it last night. I wrote this phrase. I said, how could we ever just live our life for ourselves? I came back last night. Man. Of all the people to stand on this stage and preach this message. I know I've lost days in my life, weeks, months. I'm humbled to stand before you as the one who preaches these passages. Because for a long time I sat out there, selfish, self-centered, heard the message, heard the message from birth, heard the message, grew up in church. fell into that trap of this is my life. I'm only young once. And the fact that God allows me to see on the stage to preach this message. There have been many days that I've laid my head down and said, you know what? This day wasn't about the Lord. It was about Heath. And I'm not talking about years ago. I'm talking about a struggle in the here and now. So what does it require? Man, don't move far away from this. To come before the Lord and recognize in all what you deserve and yet what he's given. How could we not, right? Lord, I know I deserve hell. I know I don't deserve your presence in my life. I know I don't deserve your discernment and your, and your comfort by your Holy Spirit, your leading. 
But yet in spite of me, gave me what I don't deserve. Five years ago, the Lord blessed Amber and I with a son. And it really has changed my view of all of this. To think, what would I give my son up for? Someone who deserves it? No. Especially not for someone who would spit in my face, put a middle finger in my face, and say, I must still do my own thing. And yet that's my description before God. And he still gave me his son. With every head bowed, every head closed. one of the reasons through this that we came to land on these words of captivated and changed by Jesus. I mean, right, I mean, to wake up each day and say, Lord, don't let me get past the overwhelming truth of what you've done for me. I know what I deserve. I know the seasons that have been lost in my own self-centeredness and pride, and yet your long-suffering, your patience. So I don't know where you're at, man. Let me say something. If you're here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, the Bible describes you as still in your sins. And the Bible says there will come a day, a point of time to be born, a point of time to die. We don't know when that day is. That we will stand before our Creator. I shudder to think that I would stand before my Creator exposed, guilty, in my sins. And the Bible says, then comes judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, who is rich in mercy, provided his son so that those who by faith and repentance turn to a Savior, turn to Jesus, and turn from their sins and call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. You stand before the throne of God. You hear the words of the Father that were voiced to the Son. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I'm asking you to stand with me right where you are. We have our spiritual response team here. Man, if you're here today and you've never called upon the name of Jesus, maybe you're here today and the Lord's been stirring in your heart. Maybe there's something there that the Lord has revealed you, whatever it may be. Man, we've got men and women that would love to grab you by the hand, pray with you, to walk with you because we're in this together. Let me say to me, we want to be about the gospel. Because that's the truth that sets us free is the good news of Jesus Christ. How has it impacted your life? Lord Jesus, we give you praise for what you've done. We celebrate your finished work and we rest in the finished work of your death, your burial, your resurrection. May you empower us daily to live the life that we cannot live on our own. May we start at the cross, nailing our stuff to the cross so that we may follow you, deny ourselves, take up that death instrument and follow you. May your life be lived in us because we can't do it. Allow us to surrender. May you be glorified. We ask that we believe in Jesus' name. And all God's people say.